Well, this morning I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story. And everybody likes stories. Everybody likes stories. Jesus told stories because they are an effective way to communicate. When my children were small, I used to tell them stories, and they were the product of my fertile imagination. They always had heroes and villains, and the heroes would escape at the end of each episode, while well, they'd actually be left in a, in a precarious position at the end of each episode, but then the beginning of the next episode, they would escape, and uh, the narrative would continue, and my children would sit spellbound as I uh, drew on the far too much television that I watched as a child <laughs> and uh, shamelessly pirated all of those uh, westerns that I had watched and turned them into stories for the kids. So I want to tell you the story this morning, but the story I want to tell you is not a product of my fertile imagination or too much television. Instead, the story I want to tell you this morning is a story about God's working with mankind. God's work among us. Usually from this pulpit, what we do on a Sunday morning is to zero in on a particular passage of Scripture and to unpack it, to explain its meaning and its relevance to us. But that's not what I'm going to do this morning, nor next week or the week following. Instead, what I want to do here is to tell you this story, and what I want to do in this story is lay a framework a framework, really, for Christmas, because the message of the story that I'm going to tell you is really the message of Christmas, and the story is designed to help us prepare our hearts for this wonderful time of year. Often at Christmas time, when we exchange gifts, uh, jigsaw puzzles find their way under the Christmas tree, don't they? Many, many people like to build jigsaw puzzles. They're kind of a, a fun holiday thing to do. And if you're going to build a jigsaw puzzle, particularly a puzzle with 5,000 pieces, then you know that the proper approach is to not to dig through the box and find one piece and then dig through the box again and see if you can find another piece that will match it and that you can put together. That would uh, take you until the Lord returns and you still wouldn't solve the jigsaw puzzle. So the only proper way to build the jigsaw puzzle is, of course, to find the four corners and then find the rest of the edge pieces. And as you fit together the edges of the puzzle, you lay out the framework of the puzzle, then you can begin to fill in the details. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, next week, and the following is to, to lay out a framework in this story. There's just not time to put all the details in place. But what there is time for is to give you the biblical framework, the biblical framework that will allow you to fit those pieces in for yourself. The story has eight chapters and an epilogue. Eight chapters and an epilogue. And so that means we are going to have to move quickly in order to get through this story in the next three weeks. And so here, you can follow along in the scriptures. In fact, I invite you to do that, but we will move quickly uh, from chapter to chapter and scripture to scripture. If, if that uh, just leaves you feeling confused, then, um, then what I would suggest to you is to just listen. Just listen to the story and allow, allow the sweep and glory of the word of God to wash over you this Christmas season. Are you ready? Chapter 1, A Kingdom Lost. Chapter 1, A Kingdom Lost. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. The scripture tells us very clearly that God spoke this universe into existence, and he did so over a period of six literal 24-hour days. On the sixth day of the creation, God uh, created man. He formed Adam from the dust of the earth. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The scripture tells us that Adam became a living being. From the side of Adam, God withdrew a rib. He closed up the flesh from that place, and he formed and he fashioned into a woman that which he had taken from the man. 
Finishing that, God announced at the end of the sixth day of creation that what he had made was indeed very good, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. He had created a perfect world, a perfect world. And he had placed into this perfect world his highest creation, a king and a queen, if you will, embodied there in the person of Adam and Eve. They are the royal couple made in the image of God. In fact, a little bit earlier, it tells us in chapter, 20, or chapter 1 and verse 26 that God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Verse 27, he created man in his own image and in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. This royal couple made in the image of God. It all looks wonderful. It's very good. It's an incredible a story of, of this beginning of the universe and man's place in it to, to rule over it for God. But it doesn't take long before the dark clouds begin to form on the horizon. And by the time we arrive in chapter 3 of this account, a usurper comes on the scene. A, a tempter arrives. And there, whom we later find by the name of Satan, in the form of a serpent, tempts this royal couple into rebellion against God. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. You surely will not die. Well, the woman takes of the fruit, she examines it, it's pleasing to her eye. It appeals to her desire for independence, and she takes and she eats. And the text indicates to us that Adam there along beside her then receives the fruit from her, and he takes and he eats as well. And then the eyes of both of them are opened, verse 7, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They died. In that moment, they died. They were cut off from God. The fellowship that they enjoyed as they walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day has been severed. They are now in open rebellion against their creator. And in doing so, they plunged both themselves. Death came to visit them and all who descend from them. All their posterity now is brought into this world under the condemnation of sin and death. And it's not just that they died, but in the process of, of rebellion against God, in the process of their abandonment of that which God had appointed them over as his, as his stewards, as his viceroy over the creation, they lost the creation too. They forfeited the kingdom to Satan. And we know that because in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6, where Jesus is there being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he, that is Satan, led Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, we're told. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Rule of the kingdom. Dominion over the creation was handed to the evil one. When our parents, our first parents, in rebellion, sinned against their God. 
chapter 2. Help is on the way. Chapter 2, help is on the way. Chapter 1 of this story ends in the most grim fashion. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, God says. And they took and they ate and they died. And the dominion over that creation, the the rule over that creation has been forfeited to the evil one. It, It looks like right out of the box, that which was very good has now become very bad. And there is no hope. But help is on the way. Help is on the way. And here in chapter 3 of Genesis and in the midst of of God confronting and rebuking that first couple in their sin, they tried to hide from God, but God sought them out. And he came to them. And he spoke first to the woman here, and he says in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, these amazing words. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking here to the serpent, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. He, the seed of the woman, shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. He will deal you a mortal blow. You will deal him a wound. From this point forward, we are introduced to the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman, that is an unusual expression. A seed refers to the man, not to the woman. But from this woman will come a deliverer someday. Someone who will rescue humanity from the predicament in which they find themselves, from which there is no hope, no way out. They must have a deliverer. And we're introduced here to two seeds, actually, in verse 15. The seed of the woman and the the seed of the, the serpent. And these two seeds work themselves out In the next two chapters of Genesis, chapters 4 and 5, and they they work themselves out in in two lineages. We're introduced in chapter 4 to Cain, to Cain, the the firstborn of Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 1, or chapter 4 and verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. I don't have time to develop this, but I am persuaded to the depth of my being that what, what actually is being communicated by the Hebrew here is for her to say is, I have gotten a man-child, the Lord. She's looking for the deliverer. And she believes that this firstborn son is him. How ironic it is that the one she believes to be the fulfillment of the promise, the the expected deliverer, the one who will bring the help that has been promised, turns out to be so far from God. And as you trace the the lineage through chapter 4, what you find is from Adam through Cain, seven generations. Seven generations. It ends with the man Lamech. Conversely, when we move to chapter 5, we find another genealogy. And in this genealogy, we find seven generations as well. Again, beginning with Adam and running all the way to Enoch. So we have a development here in the story of the two seeds, the two lines. One, the line of Cain. And one, the line of Seth. The son who replaces Abel, who his brother Cain killed. Help doesn't arrive immediately. 
Eve was wrong. Cain was not the expected one. But the expected one is still coming. Help is still on the way. It's just going to take time. And it will come through the line of Seth. So there in chapter 5, we find the, the sevenfold genealogy corresponding to the sevenfold genealogy in chapter 4 of the, the line of Cain, which is the seed of the serpent. We find here through Seth, the seed of the woman. The end of chapter 5, we are introduced here through Seth, and, and, and through those seven generations, it ends in, in uh, verse 18, chapter 5, with Enoch. He is the seventh generation for Adam, Enoch. A little further down here in chapter 5, from Enoch, we find Noah. We're introduced to the flood, and, and following that, we find that from Noah comes a son named Shem, and from a son named Shem comes a man named Abraham. Help is on the way. Help is on the way. It won't come through the line of Cain. It will come through the line of Seth. And from Seth to Enoch, from Enoch to Noah, from Noah to Shem, from Shem to Abraham. Help is on the way. Chapter 3. Father Abraham. Father Abraham. In Genesis chapters 1 through 11... The story moves us along, and we arrive here with Abraham, and the entire narrative slows down. In fact, it, it almost moves at a crawl in comparison with all that has been compressed and, and, and narrated in chapters 1 through 11. It's as if Moses is in a hurry to get to Abraham, and indeed he is. Indeed he is. Father Abraham. Biblical history that, that once was so wide now narrows and focuses down on one individual. One individual. One man whose descendants will eternally benefit from God's covenant with this man. Now you might ask, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? Covenants are common to biblical antiquity, and what a covenant is in its, in its essence is an agreement between two parties. It is an agreement between two parties that, that binds them together with common interests and responsibilities. It's an agreement between two individuals. It binds them together with common interests and responsibilities. We find in the Scriptures... Illustrations of various kinds of covenants. For example, in Genesis chapter 21 and verse 32, we find there a, a covenant between two individuals. It says, So they made a covenant at Beersheba. And Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. There is, a, there, is a, there is an agreement here between two individuals, between Abraham and Abimelech, and it concerns water rights. The use of a well. It's a covenant. Covenants can be made between nations. Exodus chapter 23 and verse 32. I won't turn you there just for the sake of time. But, but there it speaks of, of covenants between nations. In this case, Israel and the Canaanites. And they're prohibited from making them. But they can be made that way. And covenants can be made between God and man. And we have a fantastic illustration of a covenant between God and man over in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 9. Where God makes a covenant with Noah following the flood. Where he says, now behold, God says, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And we have the Noahic covenant that God says he will never again destroy his creation in a great flood. 
Now, these agreements, these covenants can be both conditional or unconditional. Conditional or unconditional. A conditional covenant is is based upon each party fulfilling their responsibilities in order for the covenant to remain in place, in order for the agreement to continue. Both sides have to fulfill their ends of the bargain. Or the covenant can be unconditional, which means that the, the action or inaction of one party does not negate the obligation of the other party to fulfill their part of the agreement. That's an unconditional covenant. An unconditional covenant uh, may have certain blessings that are attached to it, and these blessings can be, can be forfeited if one party does, does, you know, fails to abide within the terms of the covenant, but the covenant itself is not destroyed. It's not abrogated. It's not nullified by the unfaithfulness of one part of the covenant. Let me just illustrate this for you so you understand what I'm talking about. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 35, uh, Christ promises us there that, that nothing can separate a believer from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. That is an unconditional covenant. That is an unconditional agreement or promise between God and the believer. But as a believer, if we are unfaithful to our obligations under that covenant called the new covenant, then we forfeit. We forfeit the blessing that comes by walking in obedience with Christ. The covenant is not destroyed. The agreement is not abrogated. But we can forfeit blessings that are ours under that covenant by our own failures. So in Genesis chapter 12, with all of that as an understanding of the covenant, we are introduced to Father Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12. Abraham grew up and lived in Ur of the Chaldees, in the home of his father Terah, who was, we are told, an idolater. He grew up in the home of an idolater, of a pagan. And God spoke to Abraham, and he told Abraham that he was to leave his father, and he was to travel to an unknown land. But Abraham was only partially obedient. And he journeyed to the land of Haran, but he brought his father with him. Genesis chapter 11, verse 31, where it says, Terah took Abram his son and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur, the Chaldeans, in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. He was to leave his idolatrous family behind, but he couldn't do that. And so they didn't make it initially. He went only as far as Haran with his family. But his father eventually died. And when his father died, Abraham left Haran and traveled to the place he had originally been told to go. That is the land of Canaan. Chapter 12, verse 4. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And they set out, verse 5, the end of it, for the land of Canaan. And thus they came to the land of Canaan. There in the land of Canaan, God reconfirmed the original promise that he had made to Abraham when he called him to leave his family. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. When God called Abraham out, he made a promise to him, a threefold promise to him. We find it in Genesis 12 and verses 1, 2, and 3, and then it's elaborated and expanded on in chapters 13, 15, and 17. Chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. 
and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This was God's original covenant promise to Abraham when he called him out from the home of his idolatrous father. In that promise to Abraham, I said, as I said to you, there, is a, there are really three promises built all together in this covenant. The first is personal blessing, personal blessings. Verse 2, chapter 12, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Chapter 13, verse 6. The land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. God so prospered. Abraham, that, that his flocks were so huge, he couldn't dwell together with his nephew Lot. Verse 16, same chapter. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Chapter 17. Verses 2 to 6 where the covenant is repeated and expanded. And he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, For as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. Incredible personal blessings to come upon this man. This man drawn from obscurity. Drawn out of the house of an idolater. And God promises this man greatness. Numerous descendants. Indeed, many nations to come from his loins. And lines of kings to come forth from him. God also promised him, secondly, National blessings, a permanent homeland. Back to chapter 12 and verse 1. A permanent homeland. He had called him out to be a wanderer, and he said, I will bring you into a land, and I will make it permanently yours. Verse 1, now the Lord said to him, go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house. Leave everything behind and go to the land which I will show you. Again, over in chapter 13, verse 14, where the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now, Abraham, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants after you. Verse 17, arise, walk about the land through its length and its breadth, for I will give it to you. A permanent homeland. Chapter 15 and verse 18. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, including all those that inhabit it presently. Chapter 26. Verses 3 and following. Here to Abraham's son of promise, Isaac. God says, sojourn, verse 3, in this land, that I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father, Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. A national blessing to Abraham and his offspring in the form of a permanent homeland. A permanent homeland. And then third, a universal blessing. A universal blessing. Chapter 12 again. Verse 
verse 3. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Chapter 22, verse 18. Through Abraham to his son Isaac, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Chapter 28, verse 14. To Isaac's son Jacob, your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and, in, and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. To Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. What are these universal blessings? Well, it is the, it is the revelation that is the, the, the word of God through the prophets who would come from the line of Abraham. And it is most gloriously the redemption that would come through the Messiah who would come from the loins of Abraham. To Father Abraham, God made this threefold promise. Personal blessings, national blessings, universal blessings. And yet as we know about Abraham's life, it's characterized by personal failures and faltering faith, isn't it? So God progressively works in this man's life through circumstance, to continue to, to reaffirm and ratify the promise and to strengthen Abraham's faith. He does it in Genesis 15 with the, with the covenant affirming ceremony there with the, with the animals that are divided, remember? And God puts Abraham to sleep and God himself walks between the pieces of the animal carcass, signifying that this is an unconditional covenant. This is not a covenant dependent upon Abraham going through the pieces, only God goes through. In Genesis chapter 17, God reaffirms and ratifies the promises by implementing the sign of circumcision to Abraham and to all who descend from him. In chapter 22 of Genesis, God tests Abraham's faith at his point of greatest weakness. That is the gift of the son that he has looked for so much when he tells him to offer his only son Isaac. This Covenant with Abraham, with Father Abraham, is an unconditional covenant. And this is so important because from this unconditional covenant with Abraham is built the entire superstructure of the rest of the scriptures. This is the foundation stone. These are the pillars driven to the bedrock that support and hold together the rest of the biblical revelation. How do I know this covenant is unconditional? Well, here are some ways. It's reconfirmed by God to, to Abraham's offspring, right? To his, to his son Isaac in Genesis 26, verses 3 to 5. Where he says at the end of verse 3, I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. It's established with his grandson, Jacob, in chapter 28 and verses 13 to 15. Where he says in verse 13, The Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. And despite of their failures, it doesn't matter that they themselves are weak of faith. God's promise to Abraham continues. We read in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 24, So God heard the groanings of his people Israel, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know the covenant is unconditional because it's still in force 600 years later. When Israel is now on the edge of the promised land, 
And in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 31, we read that, For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you or destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. 600 years later, he is saying, I will not forget my promise. Been a lot of failures and shortcomings along the way. If this was a conditional covenant, the failure of Abraham and his offspring to fulfill their bargain, their part of the covenant, their obligations and responsibilities under the covenant would have negated it. But it's still in effect. The covenant is still in effect even after Israel, two millennia later, crucifies her Messiah. Where we read in Acts chapter 3 and verse 25, it is to you, Peter speaking here, that the Jews of his day, it is to you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11 and verse 29, referring to this same covenant, says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. So we have this man, Father Abraham. David writes, or actually doesn't write himself, but he, but he, he commands the, the, the poet of Israel, Asaph, to, to commemorate this covenant in a, in a poem that is, that is read and, and sung when the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the capital city of Jerusalem, Psalm 105. Well, the lyrics of the song says, He has remembered his covenant for, forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he, reconfirmed, and then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statue to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. Over and over and over and over again. God makes and confirms, God made and then confirms this unconditional covenant, this unconditional promise, this agreement with Abraham. And Father Abraham dies. He dies without witnessing all of the promised blessings. All of those things that have been promised him in that covenant, he, he dies before they come true. He is the one that the writer of the Hebrews said, one of the ones in, in Hebrews 11 and verse 13, that these died in faith without receiving the promises, but, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Father Abraham, he never saw his numerous descendants. He never saw the many nations that would come from him. He never saw the line of kings that would come from his loins. He died a wanderer. He never received the permanent homeland that had been promised him. Nor did he see the universal blessings that would come through him. So, beloved, he stands out for us. He is the classic example of one who walks in faith. One who apprehends by the eyes of faith the promises of God. He is our father. Father Abraham. Chapter 4. A kingdom of priests. Chapter 4. A kingdom of priests. After Israel, fleeing the, the famine in the land of Canaan, travels down into Egypt. There they, they relocate, 72 persons in all. And they become a, a mighty nation. But they are oppressed there by the Egyptians. And, and they, are, they are enslaved and, and made to work, mercilessly made to work on Pharaoh's building projects. But God delivers his people out of the land of Egypt, out of the Egyptian captivity. And he brings them to the promised land. 
And prior to, to, to their entrance into that promised land, he gathers them at the foot of a mountain called Sinai. There at Mount Sinai, he, he makes with them a covenant, a conditional covenant, a conditional covenant, a, a temporary covenant in the form of the Mosaic law. This temporary covenant by God with his people, the purpose of which is to administer the permanent blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. It is through the Mosaic covenant, this conditional covenant, this covenant that requires the people to live up to their end of the bargain, through which they will receive the unconditional promises made to Abraham. We see this most clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verses 1 and 2. We're there. We read, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. The Mosaic Covenant is a temporary covenant. It's layered upon, it's superimposed upon the Abrahamic covenant, the unconditional one. This one is a conditional covenant. It requires obedience. As you obey, you will receive the blessings of that earlier promise. If you disobey, you will forfeit those blessings. But the earlier promise remains intact. Evidence of the temporary nature of this Mosaic covenant is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. Where it says, for the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices, year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the fact that you had to come every single year and bring another sacrifice is proof positive that this covenant is only temporary in nature. For if it were permanent, if it were uh, unconditional, then one sacrifice would have been sufficient. But over and over and over again, it's a constant reminder. The Apostle Paul himself in Galatians chapter 3, verse 17, speaking about this, he says, What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. The Mosaic Covenant came hundreds of years after the Abrahamic Covenant, but it does not supersede the Abrahamic Covenant. It is the foundational promise on which the entire superstructure of the Scriptures are erected. What is all this law about? It is so that this chosen people that have been delivered out of bondage, a nation that has been birthed out from within another nation, could be a kingdom of priests. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6. You shall be to me, God says, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. What is the Mosaic law all about? Well, here's two things for sure that it's about. Number one, it is designed to make Israel a separate and unique nation. It is to set them apart from all other nations of the earth. Because it is through them that God will bring revelation and redemption to mankind. Here we are in Exodus 19. Verse 5, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, you shall be a kingdom of priests. It's to set them apart. It's to make them unique. Beyond that, it is, to, it is to, for them to be able to recognize and restrain sin until the coming of that promised one. 
the one from way back in Genesis 3.15, the one who is help on the way. Until that help arrives, the law was designed to keep sin in check. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. Beloved, Israel was not only the recipient, recipient of this Abrahamic covenant, this Abrahamic promise, but they're also the custodian of it. And it is through the law that they are the custodian. Chapter 5. Title to the land. Chapter 5. Title to the land. When God delivered his nation Israel from Egypt, there in the wilderness they rebelled against him. They refused to follow into the promised land, and so God slew every single one of them above the age of 20. They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. They had a, they had a funeral going all the time as an entire generation died off. And there, after the death of all of those above the age of 20 had occurred at the end of those 40 years, then Moses gathered the people in the plains of Moab overlooking the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Mosaic covenant is reaffirmed with them. You find it in Deuteronomy chapter 5 where the, you find the repetition of the Ten Commandments originally given in Exodus chapter 20 to that first generation are now repeated to the subsequent generation. And there in, the, in conjunction with the, with the re-giving of the Mosaic law, with the, with the reconfirmation of the Mosaic covenant, God promises blessing and cursing upon obedience and disobedience. If they obey, he will bring great prosperity to them. They will, they will enjoy the richness of the Abrahamic blessing, the promise. And if they disobey, God will bring upon them things like drought and pestilence and foreign oppression and, and captivity and worldwide dispersion. Genesis 28. Not Genesis, I am so sorry. Deuteronomy 28. Well, you see these blessings and curses outlined. And then we arrive at what some know as the Palestinian Covenant. Not all agree to this, to be sure. I find it persuasive, so I present it to you here. That after having given these these promises of blessing and cursing that, that stem from or flow from their obedience to the Mosaic Covenant, which has just been reconfirmed with them, through which they access the blessings of the Abrahamic Covenant, God enters into an additional covenant with them in Deuteronomy 29 and verse 1. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant which he had made with them at Horeb. Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. So this is the covenant besides the one that he had made at Mount Sinai. This covenant here the Palestinian covenant in Deuteronomy 29 and 30 reaffirms and, and precisely delineates the land portion of the original Abrahamic covenant. You remember that one of the, the second promise under the Abrahamic covenant was this universal homeland, this permanent homeland. Here, the, the terms of it are laid out for the people. In the interest of time, I, we're not going to go through all of them, but it had many, many features that you find here 
in Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is an unconditional covenant because this is, a, this is an extrapolation. This is, a, this is an expansion of the land portion of Abraham's original unconditional promise. So this is unconditional as well. It just teases out. And you see that in the, in the, the verbiage here in Deuteronomy chapter, one, or chapter 30, verses 1 to 3. It says, so it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from the captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So this is unconditional with except for its time factor. Meaning that when you are scattered, now that's an interesting statement to say here because he is speaking to the people who are going into the land. They haven't gone into the land yet. And he said to them, if you obey me, then I will give, you know, you will enjoy the fruit of this land. If you disobey me, you will be excluded from this land. And then in chapter 30, he says, when you find yourself excluded from the land. Okay? Oh, that you had a heart to obey me. You say that you will, but oh, that you had a heart. God says here that he, will, that he will gather the nation again. After they've been scattered all over the world because of the curses predicted in chapter 28, they will be restored to their land. Verse 5, the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. He will restore them to the land. He will gather and prosper the nation. You see it in verse 9. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hands and in the offspring of your body and the offspring of your cattle and in the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good just as he rejoiced over your fathers. Jeremiah chapter 16. The prophet Jeremiah speaks to this issue. Verses 14 and 15 of Jeremiah chapter 16. Where he writes, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north, and from all the countries where he had banished them. For I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. This land has real geographic boundaries. You can find them in Numbers chapter 34, by the way, in excruciating detail. Reading through the book of Numbers can be challenging. Right, it's sort of like sometime reading a surveyor's plot thing. You know, you go to the big tree, turn right, you know, etc. Why? Because God is very concerned with the geographical boundaries of the land that he has promised. First to Abraham and then to his seed. By the way, this was, some would say, well, th those promises were fulfilled by Solomon in the extent and reach of his great kingdom. But the answer can't be that. Because the prophets who come after Solomon, who live after Solomon has died, still see it as a future fulfillment. A future fulfillment. By the way, in Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 60, it's called an everlasting covenant. Some say, well, it was, it was fulfilled with the return from the Babylonian captivity when undeservable the nation was brought back into her ancient homeland. But, but that can't be true either because the prophet Zechariah, who is a post-exilic prophet writing to the regathered a remnant of the nation there in the land, he still sees it as future. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 3 to 8. It's still future. 
Now, by the way, I need to say here that, that ownership does not necessitate possession. Okay? You need, to, you need to hang on to that. Ownership does not necessitate possession. That is, that if land was given to Abraham to his descendants all the way up through and including the nation of Israel. The ownership is based on the promise. Possession is based on obedience. Only when they become obedient will they receive the fullness of the promise. Now, some might wonder, and I guess I probably should say at this point, well, what about what's going on over in the Middle East right now? And my answer to the question of what is going on over in the Middle East right now is I don't know. But I do know this that the modern state of Israel cannot in any way, shape, or form be said to have been living in faith and obedience to the word and promise of God. And therefore, the present nation of Israel cannot be the fulfillment of these ancient promises. And beyond that, I don't know. I don't know. By the way, why is God so concerned about regathering his people? Why is he so concerned about, about fulfilling this promise that he made 4, 000, more than 4,000 years ago? Why will he regather his ancient people into this promised land? Why? If we turn to the prophet Ezekiel, this is probably a good place to finish. Ezekiel chapter 36, we find an answer to that question. Ezekiel 36, and beginning in verse 22. The prophet writes, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among all the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people, and I will be your God. Why does God concern himself with a little strip of land running along the Mediterranean Sea? 200 miles from top to bottom. Why is God so concerned? Because he promised it to a man over 4,000 years ago, unconditionally. And he reaffirmed it over and over and over again to his descendants. And God keeps his word. God keeps his word. Beloved, like any good story, you have to develop the plot. You have to introduce the characters. You have to set up the tension. Those things have been done. When we come back together next week, we will pick it up and see how all of those threads begin to be drawn together and find their ultimate fulfillment in a little baby laid in a feed trough in a cave, in an insignificant hamlet outside of an insignificant city 
on the backside of the Roman Empire. All of world history comes down to that one. Jesus of Nazareth. Come back next week and we'll finish the story. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you, Father, that they go somewhere because they narrate reality, history, events in space and time. They are not a story in the sense that they are the the product of human imaginations. They are not legend or myth. They are actual. It is an actual record of human history and your sovereign and providential interaction with it. And so our Father, as we have worked our way through the early chapters of this great story, I pray that as we think about these things, that we could emulate Father Abraham. For there are many promises. We are part of the story. Many promises to us that remain unfulfilled require that we apprehend them with eyes of faith. May you grant us that even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.